Welcome to Women Thriving Unapologetically with Lindsay McCowan. Over the next hour, you will hear raw, honest, and inspiring conversation between Lindsay and her guests, discussing how to thrive, live joyfully, and abundantly in spite of life's challenges. Now, here is your host, Lindsay McCowan. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Women Thriving Unapologetically on the Voice America Empowerment Channel. I am Lindsay McCowan, and I'm so excited to be here today, as I always am, but I have a very special guest today. But before I introduce this amazing woman, I would love for us just to take a moment to stop whatever we're doing, because we all have just a couple seconds to stop and stand where you are or sit where you are and just feel the earth underneath you. And take several deep breaths deep down into your belly and allow those deep breaths and the presence of the earth underneath you to help all that busyness just to quiet down for you to settle in and down into this body and into this moment so that you can be fully present for the conversation that we will be having today on the power of dignity and how showing respect can be a healing balm for ourselves, our relationships, our communities, and even our justice system. So take another deep breath in and out. And then just bringing yourself back to this moment and this amazing space so you can be fully present for this amazing woman, Judge Victoria Pratt. Now, the Honorable Victoria, but this is the first time I've ever been in front of a judge. So <laughs> I will say the Honorable Victoria Pratt served as the chief judge of the Newark Municipal Court, is a professor at the Rutgers Newark School of Criminal Justice and has taught at the Rutgers School of Law. And her TED Talk, How Judges Can Show Respect, is absolutely amazing and has over 36 million views now. It's incredible. So you can say it's gone viral. And her recent book, The Power of Dignity and How Transforming Justice Can Heal Our Communities. I just went through this book. Like, I mean, I devoured it. I mean, I'm saying that like, okay, you had me on page two, like in, in the introduction, like with the the foreword by uh, Senator Cory uh, Booker. I mean, I was already like moved because he speaks about how um, that your work is meant to understand the whole person. And no one is the worst thing that they ever did and, or is defined by their trauma, substance use, or poverty. And that just was like so beautiful. And I, you learned a lot of this, like this power of respect and seeing the whole person from your mom, Miss Elsa. And this, I loved learning about her and hearing her story in your book. And can we start there and just... We hear about your mom and how she showed you these valuable lessons that have really created, made the woman that you are now and impacted the work that you're doing. We can. So first, I want to thank you for having me on this show. The judge doesn't always get invited to the party, so it's always <laughs> an invitation. I also wanted to let you know I'm no longer at Rutgers. I am currently I'm going to start as the executive director of Impact Odyssey, an, an amazing organization that fights for social justice using storytelling. So I will talk to you a little bit about that yes, later as do. well. But I am Miss El Mrs. Elsie's daughter. 
Uh, it's amazing how we as young people say, oh, I'm not going to be like my parent and we judge them and, and we just think they're crazy for doing the things that we do, that they do. And then you become an adult and the good stuff that they poured in you starts to come up. And for me, so much of it is that like people show up to their careers, they show up to the marketplace, they show up for their missions and they want to leave that good stuff aside as a part of who you are. And so they show up, I always feel like half of themselves, right? And so when I got on the bench, I said, I wasn't going to pretend to be somebody else because I can get out of the trouble that I caused, but I can't get out of the trouble that somebody else that I caused trying to be someone else. So watching my mother, who was this kind-hearted, special, special kind of person who only and always saw the good in people and seeing the things that she did, she had a shop and I was like, it wasn't a business. Again, it was her ministry. And to see how she engaged people who weren't seen, how she made us see people, how she made us do things for folks who otherwise were forgotten. Mm. And what happens is that you are teaching children that everybody deserves respect, right? And what happens when you teach children that as young people is that they begin, that, that they grow up seeing the humanity and the people that they were around. And so, so much of that when I got on the bench was a part of what I just did naturally. And I, I talk about it in the, in the book that one who was running the Center for Court Innovation at the time that does this work globally came to my court and he was like, do you just do this naturally? And I was so embarrassed because I didn't know what he was talking about. And I was like, what? What are you talking Do what? <laughs> do what? And it was the way you speak to people and it's the way you let them speak to you and the way you call them up and the way you make them feel. And I just thought, I mean, I used to tell and when I train judges because I do uh, training sessions for judges and prosecutors and people in the criminal justice system and outside of it. I tell them, I used to say to them, treat people the way you would want your mother to be treated. But then I realized a lot of people don't like their mama. Nope. And so that became a challenge, right? Because now... <laughs> you know, they, that they didn't have a basis for which to do it. And so, so much of this is, again, as you said, is about what I learned from Miss Elsie, seeing people, treating them respectfully, making space for what they needed, you know, tailoring justice so that it suited them, but also got us the outcomes that we wanted. Uh, you know, something as simple as a person who's limping up to counsel's table and you say, do you need a chair? Because they, they're forced to be in court mm -hmm. because I've compelled them to come as a part of the system. And they're also going to be compelled to stand before me. And if they can't stand, if they're focused on their pain, it's more difficult to get their attention on the case before mm -hmm. them. So, so much of that it's a simple thing, but it's respectful, right? It's respect and it's seeing their humanity and that their condition in this moment requires you to take more time. So uh, all of those things ended up becoming being this thing that uh, Tom Tyler had studied, which was called procedural justice. And what he did was go around the country starting in the 70s, looking at judges who did it right, judges who got people to come back to court, who got them to respect justice, who got people to trust in the justice system because of how they were engaged. 
And, and that's not an easy thing to do, whether or not you've been in front or had to go through the justice system or not. I think there's just an inherent mistrust. Um, and so I would imagine that's incredibly challenging to build that trust. Um, can you just for our listeners, can you explain what procedural justice is so that we're all on the same page? So procedural justice is this concept that says that if people are treated with dignity and respect by the justice system and fairly, it not only increases the, tr- the, ju- um, the public's trust in the system, it increases their compliance with court orders and the law. So it actually reduces crime because people are actually now following the law. And it also increases people's um, satisfaction with judges' decisions. Not that people don't want to win, but they at least perceive that, well, at least the judge was fair. Their decision may have been wrong, even if they feel that way because they didn't win. At least the judge gave me an opportunity to have voice. Mm -hmm. And so even outside of being a judge, it also works in terms of um, building trust in relationships with the police and relationships with the prosecutor's office if people believe, but they have to see the system and the actors as legitimate authorities to impose rules and regulations. People don't follow the law because they're afraid. They follow the law because they believe that you have some legitimacy, that you have a right. So they submit to rules and governance because of that. You have the right to govern me because I see you as legitimate. And to see you as legitimate, I have to see that you're fair, that you're respectful. And the way you imbue these things to folks is the four principles of procedural justice that I use, which are giving people voice and opportunity to speak, to be heard, to tell their side of the story. So it's voice. Yeah. And I'm just going to, I want to get to the other ones that I apologize for interrupting, but this is like such a powerful one. This really, I mean, they all stood out to me, but recently in Women Thriving Unapologetically, a lot of the guests coming in want to talk about the power of voice. And so just being able to find your voice gives you so much um, strength and helps you be seen and heard. And I would love for you to expand on how you allow people the power to to tap in the power of their own voice and Mm -hmm. the transformations that you saw. So I'll do that. And then I'll also talk to you about what I like to uh, fuss with women about. Yes. (laughs) Because voice is about in court and in justice systems and engaging police. It's about having an opportunity to tell your side of the story. And because in court and because in the justice system, we're so consumed with moving cases because of the volume, we Mm -hmm. often, people never get an opportunity to say anything other than guilty or not guilty. Mm -hmm. Usually there's an attorney there that's speaking for them. But even if they're self-represented litigants, this idea that the judge will give me an opportunity to speak. And sometimes it's not appropriate to let them speak because they might say something at a particular stage of the process that can be used against them and they need to be represented by counsel. But even in those instances, they need to understand why they don't have voice, why they can't speak at that time. And so when they don't have an opportunity to speak, when they don't have an opportunity to be heard, they also feel unseen. And Mm -hmm. so now you have the power to make a life altering decision about an incident that happened. And The only thing the complaint tells the judge is about a small portion of that incident. When the officer arrived, if they viewed that, what information was given to them. Mm -hmm. And then so 
right? So then now, and even that information and the decision to file a complaint gets heard or gets decided without the defendant being able to participate. So being able to speak and the information, there's meaningful information that the judge gets from getting an opportunity to just hear someone speak. And even if the information is not going to shift your mind about the decision, at least there was consideration for the person and how that helps. And so it builds that trust and helps them feel empowered in a moment that could actually feel very disempowering and, you know, scary, I would imagine. Yes. And, and, you know, there's uh, communication studies and I tell judges this, that show that when women end up before judges, the judge asks a question and then moves on very quickly. Now, we need time to think about what you asked me. Exactly. I need time to think about what you said and information that I'm going to give you. Process my feelings. Yeah, I've got to process. I'm like, yeah, I need to know. And and so some of it could be, you know, this bias that people have. Oh, she's going to give me too much information or whatever it is. But bringing it to judges' attention that when women are before you, slow down. Or people who don't, who, where English is not their first language, you've got to slow down. Or a person who might have mental health issues. Somebody who might have something else going on other than that question that you asked very quickly and didn't give them sufficient time to answer. And, and speaking so, in the language that they can understand, I love that part in your book where you're like, okay, I had this script that I've been given to read, yes. but no one understands this language, this legalese. And so you think it's the language, would you say the language of confusion? <laughs> it's legalese is a language we use to confuse. And that's the <laughs> next principle of understand that people have to understand the process, what's expected of them, what you said to them. We, we, we spend a lot of time speaking this language that we learned in law school and impressing each other in the courtroom. So the courtroom becomes this theater where the legal minds are impressing each other with this language and the person who's being impacted, who's going to receive the impact, the consequence of the language has no idea what's going on. And why it's problematic is that because something might might need to correct their attorney. Ah, That's not what happened. That's not how it explained. But if I don't even know what's going on, and then when you have self-represented litigants, People who are poor, who can't afford an attorney, people who have the right to exercise their right to represent themselves, but still should have an understanding of what's happening. And then the system doesn't believe that. Well, you know, it's not my job. It's absolutely your job to make sure they understand what's happening to them before you impose a consequence, uh, because that's what this process is. So that people are there to serve. That's your, that's your role. Well, that's the other thing I like to tell people who are in the judiciary. We are public servants, public servants. And if people are not obeying your orders, it makes you irrelevant. If people aren't doing what you tell them to do, it makes you irrelevant. But a part of it is because they don't understand what it is you've told them to do. And they don't often understand the consequence. Sometimes you tell people the consequence of what it is. I used to tell folks, I'm going to let you go home today. Everything on your file says to send you, to give you a bail and send you straight home and send you straight to the county jail. If you don't come to court, let me tell you what's going to happen. And I had a, um, a new judge sitting in my court where I had reduced these files. I had reduced my files because people began to respect the process, understood. And when we started to share the court, my um, no-shows, people who wouldn't return to court became high. So I decided I was going to sit in her court and see what she was talking about. And when I sat in court, I realized that she was very 
nicely saying to them, now, what do we need to do to make sure you come back to court? No, 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 no. People now, the folks didn't understand that there was a consequence. If mm-hmm. you don't come back to court, I'm going to send the fugitive squad out to your house. They come between 12 and 6 in the morning. I'm going to send them to where I think you are. And then you're going to get a bail. And so they're like, oh, really? Yeah, all of that's going to happen. So let's avoid any of that by just having you come back to court. But really understanding what what I also knew is that the population that came before me, and it was a small population that was involved in the criminal justice system, but repeatedly, that many of them were poorly educated. Many of them had mental health issues. Many of them suffered from traumatic brain injury, had significant trauma, lived under the constant threat of violence. So court was just another thing that they had to do. Um, In the city of Newark, we translated in a year about 24 different languages. Mm. So having to understand the community that you serve and what understanding process means, uh, you know, it's uh, when you say to a veteran, when I had to have them identify themselves, and I realized that uh, sometimes veterans didn't know that they were actually veterans entitled to benefits. So we would have, yeah, we We'd have a script and I'd have to ask all these questions so that they could identify themselves and no hands would go up. And one day I just was like, listen, have you ever worn the uniform? Have you ever been in the service? Have you ever been in the military? I use the language that they use to discuss their service. Oh, yeah, yeah. And then we can talk about benefits. Which is incredible because, you know, it would be so easy to just assume that they would know and and you can't assume anything you can't assume i had we had a guy who worked with the program outside of the courtroom he literally had done two tours he was homeless living at newark penn station for 10 years when they asked him why he had never gone to the va to get his benefits to apply for them he said oh i'm not a veteran because i never got injured when i was in vietnam he did two tours in vietnam and, and and believed that he wasn't a veteran because he didn't have any injuries. He'd been homeless living for 10 years for 10 years. And they were able to get him services and get him to the VA and all the money that they owed him. But he just didn't understand that he fit within the definition of being a United States veteran. So um, we also had a veteran's day. So the VA came down, counselors dealt with him. So if you were going to send them to the court, we had to make sure that we had a place where they could be served. Yeah, I mean, you know, when you were talking about that, I was getting chills because it's just it's just heartbreaking to hear these stories about how people don't understand, one, that they're a veteran or what their rights are or what the implications are. Um, and that's one, one of the things that really struck me about your book is how ignorant I was to the whole process and the impact that um, occurs with the decisions that happen in court to people's lives. Like they're really huge. Like what we might consider small can have profound impact on people's lives if we don't really understand the whole person and the whole picture. So mm-hmm. we have to go to our first break, but I'd love to come back to that. And I mean, it takes incredible skill, one, to be able to see a whole person and have that. I mean, I just want to acknowledge you for oh. your the level of awareness that it takes through and the patience to be in you know, especially in the court that you served, like in that situation with, you know, the low, the low light, um, the low end offenders, I think is that what you call it. Is that mm-hmm. correct? The mm-hmm. low level offenders. 
Yeah. And so it's, it's really challenging to be able to see that at the level in with all the, all of the inflow that you had coming in every day. So can we pick up on that when we come back from break? Sure, sure. Okay, great. So if you're listening, please stay tuned. We're going to continue with this conversation with Judge Victoria Pratt on how dignity and respect can really heal our communities and our justice system. And we'll be right back after this break. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. Women, are you tired of chasing after your dreams? Exhausted and overwhelmed from trying so hard to have the perfect life? Do you yearn for more ease, freedom, and time to explore what is near and dear to your heart, yet have no idea how to stop pushing forward? Join your host, Lindsay McCowan, and others like you on a journey to awaken the divine feminine. When you awaken the Divine Feminine, you awaken parts of yourself that have been ignored, lay dormant, put on the back burners, or forgotten. When you fully ignite these aspects of yourself, you awaken your ability to thrive in all areas of your life, including relationships, finances, health, career, and purpose. You stop chasing after life and step into an easeful, magnetic flow. You become the magnet that effortlessly attracts joy, love, space to play, abundance, and magic that illuminates your life. Does that sound like the future you? Go to lindsay.tv slash goddess to sign up today. It's your world. Motivate. Change. Succeed. VoiceAmericaEmpowerment.com You are listening to Women Thriving Unapologetically with Lindsay McCowan. Have a question for Lindsay or her guests? Want to share your story? Email Lindsay at thrivingunapologetically at gmail.com. That's thrivingunapologetically at gmail.com. Now back to the show. Here again is Lindsay. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to Women Thriving Unapologetically. We are here today with Judge Victoria Pratt having an incredible conversation wrapped around her new book, The Power of Dignity. And so I want to jump right back in because I always feel like we never have enough time to get through everything. So uh, where did we leave off and where do we want to start? <laughs> um, so, yeah, let's go, jump back into the conversation that we were having um, around the, do you, do you call it the four principles? The four principles, yes. The, the third principle is neutrality. And that is this idea that people not only have to feel like they not only have to perceive that the processes that they're engaged in are neutral, but that they actually are neutral. And so sometimes for the actor, for the judge, it feels like I'm being as neutral as possible because that's what I'm sworn in charge to do. But it's oftentimes challenging. We have to watch how we speak. Where's my police officer? Now, remember that the police officer is the person who's brought this case to the criminal court. So now the officer gets to bring the case and the judge and has a relationship with the judge, which does not appear to be neutral. And I, I remember once uh, observing a young, a new judge, and the judge was confused about a request from the attorney. And the attorney, she actually said, well, my impression of this is that I can't do that. The attorney asked that something be vacated, be thrown out as a result of his client pleading guilty to something else. 
And in the midst, middle of the process, the, the court officer, the police officer, interrupts the judge and says, ask the court clerk. And I said, ooh, ooh. now the police officer, now I'm looking at everyone in the courtroom and, I'm, and they're thinking what I'm thinking. Not only does the police officer get to arrest me and bring me into court, he also gets to direct the judge. And everyone, to my surprise, looks at the court clerk, who must have been on Facebook because the look of shock <laughs> on her face when they asked her. She was on social media or something. And I thought, yikes, this process doesn't look neutral at all. If the, attorney, if the officer gets to interrupt and interject the judge's process and then direct the judge and the judge listens. So things that are really important, this whole process of neutrality and that there's transparency. You know why I arrived at this decision, why I decided these things. You get a bail today because when I look up your criminal record, you have a number of things. Like It's not just because I don't like the color that you're wearing today. It's not because I don't like Black people today. Whatever it is, it's not because I don't like women in court or whatever it is, people need to be clear about what this process is and that it's unbiased. And then the last principle is respect, which is the most important. And when you think about people who are not seen, who are not heard, who are marginalized, um, this idea of what respect is, respect is saying good morning or good afternoon. It's looking the person in the eye as they're before you. It's the first three principles, you're showing them respect by doing the first three principles. It's how you speak to people. It's how you see them. It's how you let people in the courtroom treat them. Like, imagine that, how you allow people to treat other folks in the process. So the principles are, are incredibly important and, and, and they can be applied beyond, you know, the criminal justice system. I always talk about Sometimes I have to use them when I have a disagreement with my husband, you know, <laughs> I have to let him have voice. Well, that's process. what I really loved about this book is like, it's like, it's for everyone to read. Um, one, to help you understand the justice system and the impact that it can have on our, com- uh, our communities, um, can create some empathy and some compassion, but it also gives really clear steps on how, you know, giving someone voice or trying to understand or create, you know, the language that they're speaking, but also watching the language that you're speaking and making sure that people can understand you clearly from a place of neutrality can be challenging, especially (laughs) if it's a close relationship. Um, And then, you know, the underlying principle that holds it all together is the respect. Like without the respect, the other ones just kind of are not as solid of a pillar to stand, you know, to create that foundation that we can stand on. So I really appreciated that. Um, and so, you know, one thing that stood out to me, and I mentioned this to you when we were on break, is that, you know, what really was eye-opening for me is the impact that some of these decisions that um, you would have to impose upon people coming through your court or other judges can have such profound um, consequences for people's lives, even if it's just like if you you know, take away their driver's license, how that can completely mm-hmm. affect their life in a really pretty much detrimental way. And can you speak on that a little bit about how just some of these small things have this this trickling effects so that we can understand a little bit more clearly mm-hmm. um, 
because oftentimes I hear this a lot. It's so easy for us to see something that someone's done and they like want to give them the, the harshest punishment possible without any clear understanding of the whole picture, the whole person mm-hmm. and understanding what that's going to do to not the, just them, but maybe their families and the women that, or if they're, if it's their husband or their partner or their son that has been um, gone through the system. So can, I'm going to stop talking. You talk. <laughs> So, 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 so we talk about how minor contacts with the criminal justice system have major detrimental consequences for individuals and not just them, but their families. You mentioned the women. Uh, there's a chapter in the book on poverty. And I talk about how the criminal justice system makes victims of women, particularly poor women, particularly black women who who just because disproportionately black people are coming through our criminal justice system, women shoulder the responsibility of the finances of our justice system. So they're paying bails, they're posting bails, they're paying fines, they're paying child support payments to make sure people don't get arrested. They're paying uh, car fines. They In the states that have pay-to-stay laws, single mothers get a bill from the county jail, the juvenile facility saying you have to pay for all the time for every day that we housed your child. Well, they can't even pay for the kid when the kid's home. And so you begin to think about how these consequences not only push people into poverty, but also they push people into poverty and keep them there because most often our consequences for these minor acts are more significant or more severe than the actual act. And so this idea of that, of what fines, what monetary fines do for people who cannot pay. And so this whole process of a person gets arrested, they come, they, they get arrested, they end up before a judge, they plead guilty just so that they can go home. You give them a fine. It's a fine sometimes, and most usually in criminal cases, there are mandatory fines on top of the court fines. A person can leave and owe $525, close or $1,000 on a fine. You let them go home and then you give them a time payment. You're going to pay $50 a month. You're going to pay $100 a month. Well, when that date comes up and they didn't pay and we knew they couldn't pay it when we imposed the fine, now a bench warrant issues for their arrest. Now, I'm talking about criminal, but this is also traffic cases where people come to court and don't have enough money to pay the entire fine because they didn't know what it was going to be. A bench warrant issues for their arrest because they have now violated a judge's order to pay money. They're outside. They get picked up. They sit in jail overnight, hopefully only one night, but in most instances until they can see a judge again or a family can come up with the bail that's been issued Now they come back to court and the judge revises the time payment again. Now we know that drug addicts, if they have $5, that $5 is going towards supporting their drug habit. Yes, yes, judge, I'm going to pay you $50. So the judge engages in this hallucination, right? It's a suspension of reality because we know that what we're talking about is not going to happen. And the person spends a n- goes to jail a number of times on a case that's already been adjudicated, it's already been closed, it's already been resolved, and now there's this issue of money. And they sit in jail days and days because they failed to pay. And it's money they don't have. I mean, 
imagine how hard it is to get extra money for fines. So then we, and then courts in most communities are number two or three revenue generators. Revenue generators. That means that the city council and mayor are relying on the courts, the judge, to get water from the rock and squeeze people for money we know they don't have. And what I like in your book, you, you pointed out that there you can still create revenue for the state, but not through just focusing on the punishment and getting them through, but by actually through the procedural justice, you can still create revenue. Well, yes, you can, you can return your citizens, your human capital back to your community by providing alternative sentences that get them rehabilitated, Mm -hmm. that make them do community service and make them do community service because they do owe. And, 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 you know, nowhere in the book, nowhere in my talks do I say people should not pay what they owe. Because, yes, when you are a drug addict sitting on the corner, nodding out, that child can't play in that community in the way that a kid in the suburb. Can. So you take away from that community. A drug dealer, yes, creates a market that creates danger in that community. But people have to pay back what they owe in a way that makes sense so that we are not taking people out of our communities. So what happens to the drug dealer who dropped out? Because if he drops out of school in the 10th grade, I have a feeling he's going to end up before me. So what I need him to do is when he comes to court, I need him to go get his GED and I need to make work available to him so that he's not on that corner, so that he's not on that corner and that he's contributing back to the tax base and being a productive member in this community. So what we did a lot over just doing productive community service projects. And I remember in one year I looked at we the city of Newark got about 19,000 hours of community service. That was folks cleaning up the business district. That was folks cleaning up their neighborhood. That was folks working at community gardens that provided free vegetables to community members, to senior citizens who are on fixed budgets, who could just come down to the community garden and now get eggplant, you know, or or helping take care of a community garden that allowed people to have birthday parties. And, and, and when I tell you, you start looking at these alternatives, I remember we worked with an organization that had that data. They would do murder maps for the city and where violent acts would happen. In any place there were really violent acts happening, including murders, they would put up, they would find an, a, a vacant lot and put up a community garden and clear out the space. And what would happen is that the police officers would often station their cars outside of the space. But even more important to me, you talk about transformational healing. The guys who were outside on the corners would move their businesses, would move their activity away from the garden. Oh, wow. That's beautiful. So now there's less. And they would tell her, don't worry, nobody's going to mess with your garden because, you know, this is important to the community. And when the guys would come and the women would come back and they would have to, I'm like, oh, you were at a community garden. How was it? And I'm always laughing. I'm like, yeah, the guy with the most tats on his face and the hardest voice. It was real cool, Judge. What did you do? (laughs) I learned to mulch. And there's something healing about putting your hand in the soil. There's something healing about going back to this space that was abandoned and seeing a vegetable come up in 
a food desert. There's something healing when community members come back. Oh, you're doing that service. You're doing community service for Judge Pratt. You better do it right because you know she don't play, right? <laughs> <laughs> but knowing that they'd have on their vest, but that they were doing something different. And to see community members' relationships change, that's the healing I'm talking about. That's the work that the court can be involved in. Because if you are going to send them to court for social ills, if you are going to continue to criminalize social ills and not deal with them in the places where they need to be dealt with, which is in community centers, hospitals, in the schools, in the neighborhoods, then you have to give the courts the tools to do what it is. And what was great is that the court became a place where I'd go to the synagogue, I'd go to the masjid, I'd go to the churches and these are your folks. You have to come and serve them and have to become community service providers so that we can send people. Because I know that when you, when that person's doing community service, you have a drug, uh, a drug program that's connected to this building and you're going to be talking to them about recovery and that they're your responsibility. So that's, you know, the healing that you talk about is also about getting the community itself, the people to have their folks again and to serve them. So, yeah. Yeah. So this idea of healing, this idea of um, how this minor contact, you know, it's the young man who has the marijuana charge who we put through the program and then it gets dismissed and he gets to go through the alternative route and become a teacher and now he mentors young black and brown boys he's their big brother and they see themselves in him and he can get them through school and they can go to him when they have questions about bad decisions that he may have made when he was young so that's what i can trust him because he's been through that and i love how you pointed out that when you take men out of a community the community doesn't thrive that they need to have that the mentorship and the someone to look up to and to follow otherwise, because they're doing that, whether they're, whether they're mm-hmm. in jail or not. So if they're in jail, there is this kind of belief that, you know, I have to look up to them and be like them yes. and, and follow in those footsteps. Instead, if you put them back mm-hmm. into the community where they can actually provide and be mentors, yes. it has a huge impact. I love that part of the yes. book. And, and that's what the war on drugs did, decimated these communities. You took out people who were supposed to be the daughters to take care of ailing mothers, the aunts to step in when mom wasn't available, the sisters who were supposed to take care of their siblings. Those were the things you talk about destroying a family when we know that family members can step in for other folks. And so when you decimate everybody, the communities and send everyone to jail as opposed to dealing with these issues, what do you leave but holes and children to raise children and no one to help the folks who are already there? Yeah. And so we're nearing our second break. You can believe that. Um, But I really want everyone that's listening to just take a moment to reflect on everything that we've talked about up to this point, because we're going to continue this conversation with Judge Victoria Pratt and how respect and dignity and seeing the whole person can really offer really profound healing for our relationships, our community. And while you're on, while we're on break, be sure to go over to my website and check out the challenge that I have coming up at the end of the month. And this is a challenge for women who want to awaken and nurture the sacred feminine so that we can come back into our whole being and become Mm -hmm. a greater presence in our relationships and our communities and be a positive impact in the shaping of this new uh, I don't want to use the word paradigm. It's a little overused, but 
mm-hmm. paradigm. Okay, we'll be right back after the break. Follow us on Twitter at VoiceAmericaTRN. Get the lowdown on guests, new shows, and your favorites. That's VoiceAmericaTRN. Women, are you tired of chasing after your dreams? Exhausted and overwhelmed from trying so hard to have the perfect life? Do you yearn for more ease, freedom, and time to explore what is near and dear to your heart, yet have no idea how to stop pushing forward? Join your host, Lindsay McCowan, and others like you on a journey to awaken the divine feminine. When you awaken the divine feminine, you awaken parts of yourself that have been ignored, lay dormant, put on the back burners, or forgotten. When you fully ignite these aspects of yourself, you awaken your ability to thrive in all areas of your life, including relationships, finances, health, career, and purpose. You stop chasing after life and step into an easeful, magnetic flow. You become the magnet that effortlessly attracts joy, love, space to play, abundance, and magic that illuminates your life. Does that sound like the future you? Go to lindsay.tv slash goddess to sign up today. It's your world. Motivate. Change. Succeed. VoiceAmericaEmpowerment.com You're listening to Women Thriving Unapologetically with Lindsay McCowan. Have a question for Lindsay or her guests? Want to share your story? Email Lindsay at thrivingunapologetically at gmail.com. That's thrivingunapologetically at gmail.com. Now back to the show. Here again is Lindsay. Welcome back, everyone, to Women Thriving Unapologetically on the Voice America Empowerment Channel. I'm here today with Judge Victoria Pratt, and we're having an incredible eye-opening conversation. And so, you know, this show is really dedicated to women and serving women in a way that they can feel seen and heard. That's a really important piece of the show for me is that through the conversations that we're having, that we can be seen, heard, and feel like we're not alone and offer have really valuable resources that we can take with us. And I know, Judge, that you wanted to talk a little bit about um, being seen, especially for women, a little bit before, on this last segment of the show. So, Yes, yes. So I, I know you, you asked um, people what does uh, being, what does unapologetically thriving mean for them? And for me, it means staying on your God-given mission, no matter what's happening around you, no matter what obstacles you're facing, no matter what the failures and setbacks are, and to continue to incrementally and not even incrementally, because I think to continue to do the work, because you understand that it's about service and that you understand that if you don't show up to do what you've been called and assigned to do, someone doesn't get the service, that you are the answer mm-hmm. to someone's prayer. And if you don't show up, that prayer doesn't get answered. So you can't fail. Somebody will get to them. And so this idea, again, that when you are in the middle of doing your work, you can't see the incremental success that you're having. You can't, you can't know yeah. it and you shouldn't be so focused on it. And so that's the thriving every day that you wake up and you say, I'm going to hit it again. Every day that you wake up and you go like, okay, not that way, but this way. Every day you wake up and you have to, as you did this morning before we got started, 
get centered and say, yesterday was crap. (laughs) Today it will not be, right? Because yesterday was as bad as it can get. And so I'm just going to focus on this thing. And it's those things. That's what thriving is, is when you are still in the game. When you're still in the game, when the naysayers are speaking, when you understand that the naysayers are sometimes your angels because they are pointing out things. Sometimes we don't listen to what people say. We just say we stay hooked on that negative, ugly, untrue thing that a person says. And we don't listen for the beautiful, true thing that we say. And I think that's because deep down inside, something in us wants to believe that ugly thing so that we can stop. So we can say, well... I couldn't do it because, you know, you're right. I don't have enough experience. I'm not smart enough. I don't come, I don't have the right background. Those, those are the things that I think we want to lay on. Like, oh, well, if, if we believe them, then yeah. we don't have to continue to move. And so. This you're like my angel right now. I just want to oh. say, because you are saying everything that I have needed to hear. Um, and I, I teach this to my clients, but some, you know, it's so difficult sometimes to see it for yourself that when you're in it and you're just, I know I'm aligned with the work that I'm doing, but I can't yeah. see the incremental changes that are happening or yeah. who I'm impacting. And yeah. I'm like, why am I doing this? You know, yeah. and and we've been conditioned to think that, oh, it has to be something big. If I'm not reaching oh. a million people, then I'm not successful. Oh but it's just gosh. like, and you got to see this and witness this. Yes. And when you were still a judge in the municipal court is that you just got to see, like people would come back to your court and share with you the changes that were positive impact that you had on them. And so yes. I appreciate you just mentioning that because yes. I felt like, no, yeah. It's that the thriving is in you doing it. You're not supposed to see all the success. You're just supposed to keep doing a thing and getting better at it and having better understanding so that you can serve better. I'm on Instagram and now I'm getting the book comes out and I'm a lot more out there. So people I'm getting texts, I'm getting messages and they're like, thank you for the tough love. I remembered, I, I mean, interns, I remember I, one summer, I turned the court into a teaching course. So I got interns, summer interns, high school interns. And I would sometimes, other departments would be like, yeah, I can't manage this intern. I'm going to send them to you. And I was like, excuse me, you know, this is not reform school. This is a court. But I would put them <laughs> in court with me. Go do this. Go do that. Uh-uh, uh-uh. We're not doing that. That's not how you present professionally. Because this would be their first job. You're 15, 16. Uh-uh. Do that. Do this. And I got a text, I got a message from someone, one of, and I hadn't seen this intern maybe in seven years. And she was like, I listened to everything you said. I didn't do it until this thing in my life happened. And I really understood. Now I have, I'm a business owner. I graduated from college. And this was really somebody who was having some challenges in life and mom couldn't do anything. And the person, and I remember thinking, oh, she's going to be as mad at me as I was at my mom, but I appreciated <laughs> no, right? Because no taught me there's danger. No taught me don't go this way. Don't go that way. And, and just even young men who are like, thanks for um, seeing something in me. And so for women in particular, who we have, the weight of the world. We take care of our families. We take care of ourselves. We take care of our neighbors. And sometimes we do have to push some of that stuff away, but you're doing the work and it's paying off because 
your service is showing up in how you are impacting the lives of the folks who are going out to do other things yeah. as well. And if we get focused, sometimes some of us can't get can't get to see the success early because then we're like, uh oh, I'm done. <laughs> yeah, I've done What's it. What's the next thing? What's the next thing? Or yeah. maybe I'm done forever. And mm-hmm. so I, I laugh at uh, all this early retirement, and I'm like, wow, it's cool that folks are interested in it. But if you only get focused on the end. Like, oh, I'm early retirement, early retirement, and I'm going to just retire at 31. And I'm like, okay. But I hope that early retirement just gets you closer to your service yeah. and what it means. And, and so I was saying to somebody, and, and we have to constantly evaluate. I like to call it the self-check, right? Sometimes we're really hard on ourselves, and it's not that. We don't need to be <laughs> hard on ourselves that we become immobilized, but it's the self-check. And so I was talking to a group, a a staff of folks, and I was telling them about how important service is. Some of them don't get to see their service because they're not out in the community doing the work. It's the accountants. It's the folks who are working on the grants. It's the folks who don't get to see the outcome so often. And I said to them, if if it's about service, then your ego has to take a second seat. Yeah. And when I said it, I hurt myself because I was at war with somebody who wouldn't let me do something and they let someone else do it. And I was like, I'm not going, forget it, later for you, you don't know. And as soon as I said it, humility just showered me. I was like, and I emailed them. I was like, I'll see you there. I love how, if this happens to me all the time is when I'm teaching, I'll be all of a sudden this message comes through me and I think it's for the person or the group that I'm teaching or guiding and all of a sudden I'm like, oh. That's for me. That's for me. You made me say it so I could hear it. And I couldn't call them a liar. (laughs) So um, just, it's just, it's, uh, it's about the work. And before I get off, since we're talking about women, women, when we walk into a room and we've done all the work on the project and there are a lot of people with, who are in the room, they'll sit at the table. I am notorious for going up to people and they're like, when you go into a room, sit at the table let them tell you that there's not a seat there for you because the likelihood that they're going to ask you to move is small. And what they'll probably do is go get another seat for the person who they expect it. We go into these meetings and we immediately go sit on the outer ground. Mm-hmm. We've done all the work on the project. We know it better than the person we're reporting to. Go sit at the table. Let them tell you to go sit someplace else. Because then we get to be a part of that conversation and then we get to be seen and then we get to go, hmm, have you ever thought about this? But so often we ourselves block success from coming. Now, that's just one example. But we're screaming so loud at success. No, 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 no. We don't really want it. No, no, no. Because we can't get it. We're not ready for it. I can't do this. Blah, blah, blah. That when success yeah. comes, it's like maybe success was for 11 Park Street and not 12 Park Street, which is where I am, right? Because mm-hmm. we send it somewhere else. Yeah. And so, but again, sometimes we're over. <laughs> I don't even know if you can be over, if there can be a, a sense of being us. Um, I mean, I can't even put the word together. So maybe I shouldn't say when you're humble to a fault. But that it's not about you. It's about the work and the work that you've been yeah. called to do and how you've been called to shift the world and how you've been called to transform. And it could be the small thing. I was in a court, a little court, the biggest one in the state of New Jersey, the 13th largest in the country. 
But I was in a small court with people nobody really cared to be bothered with. Doing the work. Doing the work. And then people were really coming. doing the work. You said you sometimes you would come out of there feeling like you were had been in a brawl. In a brawl physically pain mm. from the trauma that people would leave and that mm. you would then have to like trust that I trust that I made the right decision for this person today. I, I trust, I hope that I had the words to speak possibility mm. and potential and hope into their lives when they leave. And you don't know what you say to someone. You don't know when you pour it, you, you drop it in their spirit and it's going to come back or come up a year from then. Or even longer it. down the line, you just have to yeah. keep pouring that love into them and offering yeah. that, you know, the power of voice, being neutral, um, yeah. was giving them ability to be understood, seen and heard. And, mm-hmm. and I know we're getting close to the end of the show, but I just wanted to reiterate, you know, for women, like, claim your space. This is what I tell women oftentimes, just claim your space. And sometimes that means that walk into that room and take that seat at that table. Mm-hmm. And be a part of that conversation and just facing the vulnerabilities that come up because there's a lot of conditioning there for women. Mm-hmm. And we have to be able to unravel that because we are actually incredibly powerful at offering yes. all of the, the love and the wisdom that we need for the deeper healing to occur. So before we close, is there, tell us how we can get your book, The Power of Dignity. Oh. Oh, it's everywhere books are sold, Amazon, Barnes and Nobles. If you're going to buy bulk books, you can go to Porchlight as well. You can go to my website. There's some places listed there as well. That's Tell us your website. www.judgevictoriapratt.com. Also, if you can go to my new, um, to my work website, which is Odyssey Impact, we use documentaries and social campaigns to really help attack and get people galvanized to take on social ills and we use faith voices so we bring together rabbis priests reverends to talk about what faith says we should be doing which is acting and taking some action so that's odysseyimpact.org as well odysseyimpact.org so definitely go check that out it's uh it's been such a pleasure to have you here today thank Thank you you so much for pouring love into this conversation and definitely go check out um, and by The Power of Dignity. The I have to say, it was an incredible book that surprised me. And I, I was like, I don't know, am I going to like this book? I'm like, no, I love it. Oh, thank but, you so much. Yeah. It was definitely a labor of love. Uh, and so with that, my friends, this is Women Thriving Unapologetically. And if you want to join me at the end of the month, on what is the end of the month, the 26th or the 28th, I'm doing a live experience where we can drop in together and really look at what it means to claim our sacred feminine power and how we can stop overworking ourselves, depleting ourselves and self-sacrificing ourselves. But how can we step into a deep well of nourishment so that we can come and do the service that we're meant to do in this life? So much love to each and every one of you. Until next time, my friends, this is the Voice America Empowerment Channel. Thanks for listening to this week's episode of Women Thriving Unapologetically. We hope we've inspired you to claim your birthright to thrive. Tune in next week where we will continue to give you the tools you need to flourish, prosper, and thrive. Until then, have a beautiful week.